I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Roger Wendell. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 26, 2013. Coming up, author Dan Fagan discusses his new book, Tom's River, about decades of chemical contamination in a New Jersey town and how this epidemic still haunts many residents. And we demonstrate an ancient but high-tech way to start a fire. It's fire by friction, with a little help from some carbonized cotton and a bow drill fire stick. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you want to know whether you're prone to weight gain, someday you may be able to toss out the bathroom scale and instead breathe out to find out. That's the implication of a new study by Dr. Ruchi Mather at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Mather's study involved 800 people asked to breathe out while researchers measured the hydrogen and methane gas in their breath compared to their body fat. People who breathed out more hydrogen and methane gas tended to be fatter. As for why, Mather thinks it involves a tiny gut microbe. That microbe, with a long scientific name known in short as M. smithii, uh, can be a normal part of a healthy gut microbial community. However, when it overgrows in the digestive tract, often people are more obese. It's not clear whether the microbe causes the increase in the obesity or it becomes more abundant when other things are out of whack. But the fact for something as simple as breathing out may help identify people more prone to gaining weight is an idea that is gaining more acceptance. The study has just been accepted for publication in the Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Being chronically lonely has been linked to increased risk of death among elderly people. But a new study suggests that being socially isolated might be an even greater predictor of an early death than being lonely. In fact, the study found that social isolation acts independently of loneliness to undermine health. Andrew Steptoe and colleagues at University College London studied 6,500 men and women aged 52 and older to explore how each condition influences the risk of death. All the subjects had enrolled in an English longitudinal study of aging in 2004, the researchers assessed the participants' risk of death for eight years through March 2012. The participants were classified as socially isolated if they had limited contact with family, friends, and community organizations. A questionnaire was used to measure how lonely they were. The researchers found that social isolation foretells death regardless of the participants' health and demographic information. But the link between loneliness and death is limited to participants with underlying mental or physical concerns. So the study suggests that while elderly people might benefit from becoming less socially isolated and lonely, interventions that encourage social interactions might actually help them live longer. The study was published online yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And if you don't feel lonely but might sometimes just want to disappear, then perhaps you felt impatient about the question to create a Harry Potter-style invisibility cloak. After all, the ones created by scientists so far have been too bulky to be a true cloak. Now, researchers from the University of Texas, Austin, have developed a cloak that they call a Metascreen, which is just a micrometers thick and can hide three-dimensional objects from microwaves in their natural environment, 
in all directions and from all the observer's positions. The researchers achieved this cloaking by creating a fishnet design made out of ultra-thin copper tape. This fishnet metascreen absorbs microwaves so they don't bounce back. That's significant because the way that we see anything involves energy waves that bounce back from an object. Currently, the metascreen doesn't cloak anything very big at all, and it's not confirmed that it can cloak objects for normal waves such as light. Still, it's considered a step forward for those intrigued with the fascinating thought of hiding in plain sight. The research is being published today in the Institute of Physics at the German Physical Society's New Journal of Physics. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. You've likely heard of the chemical contamination of Love Canal in Niagara Falls in the mid-1970s and the leukemia cluster linked to water pollution in Woburn, Massachusetts in the mid-80s. That case was made famous by the book Civil Action and the subsequent Hollywood movie. But you may not have heard of another cancer cluster also linked to industrial chemicals, this one in the small town of Toms River, New Jersey. A new book has just been published on the subject. It's called Toms River, A Story of Science and Salvation. The book is far more than an investigation of one town's struggle, however, however tragic and complex that case is. Tom's River is a probing and colorful tale for anyone concerned about whether the air they breathe and the water they drink is in jeopardy, and for anyone wondering how polluters can still get away with so much dirt on their hands. The book was written by science journalist Dan Fagan, who's an associate professor of journalism at NYU, and he's on the phone from New York to discuss Tom's River. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Susan. Good to be with you. So I should say, given we don't have that much time, but that the book has so many parallel stories, one of them being this fascinating history of epidemiology, um, the field <clears throat> studying the factors influencing health and disease across population. But let's maybe just, just start with Tom's River, since we don't have that much time. But what brought you to the story in Tom's River, New Jersey, right near Pennsylvania, right? Right. Um, it's actually not so close to Pennsylvania. It's 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 on the shore, actually. Um, it, it's about e equidistant from Philadelphia and New York City. I, I had heard about the situation in Tom's River. Uh, I, I was uh, at the time I was a reporter for Newsday in New York, and uh, cancer epidemiology was uh, a real a huge interest of mine. You know, I'm trying to untangle this subtle, complicated relationship between. Right environmental exposures than cancer, and I had written a lot about it on Long Island, uh, where it was a huge issue. So when I heard about Tom's River, I thought, wow, I'd like to know more about this. And later, when I became a, a professor at NYU, started looking around for something to write uh, a book about, well, I thought Tom's River was, was really the perfect choice, because it's such a gripping story. But but more, even more importantly than that, for me, is that it's a way to get at a much bigger idea, and and that is, how do we know what we know uh, about the relationship between pollution and a chronic disease like cancer? That's an endlessly fascinating subject to me, and and I thought that this was a great way to to get at that bigger topic. And you start with this really powerful personal story of a kid at the time, but now a young adult, named Michael Gillick. And you really start by bringing us inside his pillbox to see what his day-to-day -day 
life is like for someone who shouldn't have lived past the age of one, right? At age 30, I think he's four feet, six inches tall, weighing 100 pounds. Um, yeah, Michael, is, Michael is, a, is a fascinating guy. He really is. Uh, he, uh, as you said, um, the doctors had told his parents that he had a 50-50 shot of, of making it to his first birthday, you know, which is why they actually celebrated his first, first birthday at six months. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, the, the, his, his mom... His parents were forced to prepare for the worst to the point that they even bought a coffin uh, ahead of time uh, because they didn't want, wouldn't want to have to deal with it uh, when, the, when the horrible moment came. So Michael is a fascinating guy, uh, and he's still alive today. He has a difficult life, but what's interesting about Michael and his mother is that they're very committed to uh, their community, and uh, uh, they have been leaders for a very long time, ever since Michael was young, uh, of a, a real community uprising in Tom's River. And, and so in a nutshell, he was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, cancer of the nervous system. <clears throat> Give us um, just a gist of what happened. This is mainly with the company SIBA, also Union Carbide, sort of multiple sources of yeah. chemical pollutants, right? Right. Well, there's so much to talk about. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, but but what, what happened basically is that, you know, Tom's River is a town like so many other towns. It's got its strip malls and little leagues. It's got an amazing little league, actually. Um, but what was different about Tom's River is that the chemical industry came to town in the form of a very large plant. And this uh, is back in, in, what, 1952? In 53? the 50s, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, in the early 50s, SEBA uh, came to town. And they came to town after, you know, a century, almost a century of, of significant environmental problems in other places where they operated, especially with their dye manufacturing, which dye manufacturing generates huge volumes of waste. So they picked Tom's River because they would have plenty of room and they had the sandy soil where they could easily get rid of their waste. And that uh, sandy soil made it all the more porous and likely yeah, that it it's also like, polluted the ground groundwater, right? Yeah, oh, not likely. It, it absolutely did. Uh, billions of gallons that, that are still being pumped up today and, and will continue to be pumped up for at least another dozen years. And this, the second thing that, that happened to Tom's River, like other New Jersey towns, is that illegal dumpers started coming down from the heavily industrialized northern part of Jersey and also uh, east from, from Philadelphia and Camden, the heavily industrialized places there. They, they came to Ocean County uh, looking for space to do their illegal dumping. And uh, uh, a gentleman uh, of uh, a really bad reputation named <laughs> Nick Fernicola uh, uh, cut a deal with Union Carbide to take thousands of barrels of their waste, and Union Carbide really took very little interest in in what Nick, what Fernicola was doing with their waste. And it turns out, uh, Fernicola eventually wound up in the back two acres of a of an old chicken farm, and he just dug some trenches and just started dumping, dumping, dumping. Uh, and that particular uh, dumping incident became a a huge problem, arguably a much bigger problem in terms of uh, contaminating the drinking water supply than even the SEBA factory was. And all this was actually legal at the time, right? Well, no, not quite. No, not, the, uh, not the dumping uh, in the egg farm. Yeah, that, not what Fernicola was doing. That was quite illegal. Uh, uh, and uh, he, he was uh, allegedly prosecuted, but but you know there there was very little little tangible penalty except they told Fernicola he couldn't 
he couldn't be in the waste handling business again, and they confiscated his truck. Uh, uh, for for SEBA, uh, it's true that most of what SEBA did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was legal. Uh, there were a couple of prosecutions, one in the 70s and one in the 80s, uh, and they each ended in, in settlements. Uh, but, but in the main, what SEBA was doing was, was legal. And so... I'm going to wrap it up with the story itself. I know there was a cancer cluster. Uh, there was a huge legal settlement. But it seems that this is also a tale of how complex it is to try to link disease, in this case cancer, with the actual pollution source. I mean, does that remain for you, this open, intriguing question? Yeah, I, it is. I think I think it's a puzzle. It's a big puzzle, uh, you know, a, a puzzle of science that that – is just not an easy one to solve. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a guy who I quote in the book named David Ozanoff from Boston University, and he says, a good working definition of a public health catastrophe is a health effect so large that even an epidemiological study can detect it. <laughs> and what, what he means by that is that epidemi- epidemiology, you know, the study of, of patterns of illness, Right. Is really one of the best tools we have, but it is a weak tool, especially when the community is small and a, the particular disease is rare. Cancer isn't rare, but there are so many different kinds of cancer that if if we look at particular types, uh, it does become rare. And, and, and one and other the, thing I just wanted to ask also, um, mm-hmm. in the interest of time, so could mm-hmm. this happen today? I mean, we've got a lot of companies that have until recently and, and still been not disclosing the chemicals they're using in hydraulic fracturing, for example, and some health studies just starting to emerge. I mean, is this as, as timely now as it was back in, you know, the 50s and the 70s and the 90s, for that matter? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite ready to, to say that there's a direct analogy to fracking because the exposure pathways are, are not as direct uh, as, as they are in some of these groundwater cases. But, but certainly there's a lot about fracking that, that we don't understand, uh, that, and, and there's a lot about how contaminants move uh, through the ground that we still don't, uh, don't understand. It depends very much on local conditions and, and the particular chemicals involved. So I am worried about that. Uh, what I'm even more worried about, frankly, is where the chemical industry is, is doing its major work now, which is uh, in China and India and Indonesia and places like that, where there's already lots of talk of so-called cancer villages and a lot of amateur epidemiology uh, breaking out uh, within the communities out there. And it's just terribly upsetting uh, that we're not learning from our mistakes. Uh, yeah. Just well, as, and as you said, so much of the problem is moving offshore. Um, right. Well, just, we've just got to, to cut it off. Yeah, I was just going to say, just as it it started in Europe and eventually came to Tom's River, now it's moving on first to Alabama and then overseas. We we, we need to stop repeating our mistakes. Well, thank you so much. That was Dan Fagan, author of the new book, Tom's River, A Story of Science and Salvation. You can learn more about the book at his website, danfagan.com. That's F-A-G-I-N. Thanks so much. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Roger Wendell. With me in studio is Michael Big Smoke Slayton and his wife, Loretta Flint Woman Slayton. The Slaytons are longtime practitioners of primitive fire making and survival skills out of Loveland, Colorado. Teaching at rendezvous, schools, and outdoor shows, Michael and Loretta 
have delighted thousands with their backup to the BIC demonstrations, how to create a life-saving fire during an emergency when matches and high-tech lighters simply won't do the trick. Michael and Loretta, welcome to KGNU. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. Great. Good to have you here. Before we talk about bow drill fire sticks and flint and steel, I'd, la- I'd like to ask you how our ancestors in Africa, Australia, the Americas, Europe, or anywhere, anywhere else around the planet made fire. What's the history of fire making for our people? Those different continents that you just mentioned each had a specialized fire-making method. Some had the fire saw with bamboo, the fire piston, um, and uh, um, the fire, I think I said the fire plow. But here in North America, it was used generally the bow drill fire sticks, and which was where you spun a drill uh, with a bow and a hearthboard and created fire, created an ember. And we're going to get into a demonstration here in just a moment of the bow, bow drill fire stick. But I wanted to ask you first, I, just a random, unscientific sampling. I picked up a generic lighter at one of the local stores, and uh, it's pretty high-tech as far as fire making goes over the years. Maybe not quite as high-tech as piezoelectric charcoal starters for the grill out in the backyard. But this is the best we've got. And I'm going to try and fire this up for you right now and hopefully not set off the fire alarms here in the the station. Okay, well, that was relatively easy. There's a child-proof little switch on it that I overcame even at my age. But what's the problem? What's the problem with, uh, say, a Bic-like starter or matches nowadays? Um, Bic lighters are good. All of us use them to a greater or lesser degree. But Bic lighters do have a vertical limit. Anything with butane or propane tends to, if it gets too cold or too extremely hot, it doesn't function properly. Uh, the little canister, the reservoir that holds the fuel runs out. And sometimes when I do archaeology work, I find big lighters out in the desert. And I take and will spark the tip. The fuel is obviously gone but I can still hold up a piece of char cloth that catches the spark and use that empty big lighter to make the fire. And, and we're going to kind of demonstrate that to a further extent here in just a moment. But I wanted you to also address, if you would, what's happened to matches? I'm a little bit older. I can remember when matches were reliable. Now they seem to melt in my hand. What's taken place? <laughs> L- Loretta's nodding her head in agreement. <laughs> Um, they have changed the strips on the side, and so they're not solid like they used to be, for one. And when you go to light your match, a lot of times the heads pop off or fizzle. Um, they race towards your fingers, so you have very little time to even work with them. You could probably add a little bit more on the science end of it, Michael. Well, I think the federal government government made an effort to make matches as safe as possible, and the days of where you could take the match and hold it in your finger and strike the head with your fingernail and light it or shoot it out of a BB gun at a passing car to light it well, and we do all kinds of tricks. We don't want to endorse that. <laughs> Those days are gone, but there are a few good matches out there. Well, let's talk you... about the the bow drill then. Let's take this opportunity to explain and demonstrate this and why it would be superior to a match 
uh, according to your practices. What do you have here laid out on the desk before us? Okay, on the desk here I have um, an example of the bow drill fire sticks. I have a bow with a cord. That bow is used to spin the turn the fire spindle. The fire spindle's tip has a charred tip and a cold tip that never gets hot, and that spins in the fire socket that's on the hearth board. So by virtue of the spinning of the drill, the fire spindle, and the fire socket on the flat hearth board that lays on the ground, it grinds away and gets very, very hot, blackened. Can we go ahead and demonstrate that now with our sure. few remaining moments? Without catching the studio on fire, let's see what we can generate here. Okay. Okay, so you've got your bow in one hand. Got my bow, my fire drill in the other. I arm the, the drill and the bow by wrapping the cord around it. And then I take and put the, the fire end in the socket of the hearth board. Okay, and if, you can, if listeners can imagine this right now, it looks like kind of an ancient setting. We've got this bow drill in action. Uh, Michael's getting ready to push the bow back and forth to generate uh, some heat here to start a fire. We don't I, want to go too far. But okay. I do have the stone socket that fits in the palm of my hand, which allows me to control it. And so I'm spinning it now. You can hear it squeaking a little. And it takes a considerable amount of effort. Typically, how long would it take to get an ember going? A minute, a couple of minutes? Um, 15 seconds. I've timed it numerous. Okay. So let's go ahead and see if we can't get one, get, get a little bit of smoke going here okay. without alerting the uh, fire marshal. Okay, I can smell it. It's certainly starting to emit just a little bit of smoke. Yes, definitely visible smoke. I'm putting my hand over the uh, smoke detector as we speak. Okay. And now what it's doing, it's already created a, quite an abundance of black and charred dust. And the dust is where the ember would, would grow and develop from. Okay, so your recommendation would be, in addition to matches and Bic-like lighters and those kinds of things, that you carry something similar to this or maybe even flint and steel with our, a few remaining moments here. M many survival experts care, and outdoors people carry flint and steel especially because it's light and compact and they carry a half-sized little fireboard with a with a bow and a drill i carry that myself uh in my backpack and what's a good way that folks can learn more about maybe your teaching or making uh, fire by primitive methods in general loretta uh, we meet regularly with the Tanner Gun Show, and that's one of our outlets as well as PE Gun Show. So those are two places that you can find us We're demonstrating. We have outdoor events such as the Elk Fest event in Estes Park in the fall. And how about a website or another resource? Uh, we are under construction with primitivefiremaking.com, which will have our information hopefully in the near future put together. Fabulous. Great demonstration. There's not a lot of smoke in the studio. Uh, we sure appreciate your time at KGNU this morning. My guests have been Michael and Loretta Slayton of Big Smoke. You can learn more about primitive fire making at primitivefiremaking.com.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender. Shelley is also our executive producer, and theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Roger Wendell.